0: Welcome to Anthropologfinning's podcast, Anthropological Happy Hour. These episodes are based on the recordings of the Anthropological Happy Hour events, which the Anthropological Association of Denmark co-hosts with the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. This episode is based on the recordings of a theoretical Happy Hour event, which will discuss a new theoretical turn within anthropology. Today's discussion is a dialogue between Professor Emeritus at Copenhagen University, Kirsten Hestrup, and Professor Gisli Pelsen from the University of Iceland. Both professors have an interest in the interrelations between human sociality and the natural world, and the discussion will take its point of departure in the article called Down to Earth, Geosocialities and Geopolitics, written by Gisli Pelsen and Heather Swanson. In this article, the writers put forth the suggestion of a geosocial turn within anthropology, expanding the concept of geopolitics by re-theorizing the entangled relations between earth and biological beings. So if you were not able to attend the event, or if you missed a detail, we're glad to take you back for an interesting afternoon in the name of anthropology.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, So on behalf of Anthropologfeining, I would like to welcome all of you for this Theoretical Happy Hour on Geosociality. We have been uh, looking forward to this very much, uh, to say the least, uh, because we have two highly prominent guests with us today, uh, Professor Gisli Palsan and Professor Kirsten Hestop. I'll, I'll begin by presenting our uh, guest from Iceland, who is here today, a uh, professor in anthropology at the University of Iceland. Gisli Uh You have published wildly, widely uh, with, uh, within the research fields environmental anthropology, human environment interactions, uh, social implications of climate change and biotechnology, as well as the Arctic cultures. Uh, you're also currently involved in a, in a project that explores sort of the intersection of anthropology and, and the genetic genealogy. You have, during your years as an anthropologist, done, done long-term fieldwork in Iceland, the Canadian Arctic, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and your presentation today has the title Do We Need a Geosocial Turn?, and it is based on a paper uh, you have written together with Heather Swanson, <coughs> which is titled Down to Earth, Geosocialities and Geopolitics. And I think I'll present you as well, Kirsten, now. <laughs> You are Professor Emeritus at the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University uh, and Kirsten has, within the last years, been the principal investigator of two major interdisciplinary research projects at the department. Uh, the last one was, was entitled the Now Project, Living Resources and Human Societies Around the North Water in the Thule area, Northwest Greenland, and the previous project was a major comparative project entitled Waterballs. Uh, Apart from having published several books and journal papers on the methodology and history of anthropology, uh, which has made you a highly important figure in shaping anthropology as it is practiced in Denmark at least, Uh, you have also published extensively on on the entanglement of natural and social processes, social responses to climate change, the history of Arctic exploration. And throughout your career, you've done long-term fieldwork in Greenland and in Iceland as well. And today you will give a presentation that has the title Living with Ice, High Arctic Geosociality. We'll begin with you, Kirsten.
2: Thank you very much. Yes, this is the title of my contribution today. And I want to thank the uh, the Society of Anthropologists for organizing this happy hour and for suggesting such a timely theme. It touches on matters related to the discussion of the Anthropocene, while also opening up a new approach. And I want to acknowledge Gisli's seminal article with Heather Swanson, the one that was just referred to in the journal Environmental Humanities, suggesting a new analytical perspective on the geological-human relationship through the concept of geosociality, applicable to multiple scales from the intimate to the planetary. I think this makes the term a very useful one to think within anthropology having necessarily necessarily become multiscalar. My contribution to the discussion takes off in the high Arctic, and my argument centers on the ice that has always defined the geographical region and held the social community together. Time only allows me a few snapshots of what I see as instances of geosociality, and a brief conclusion opening up the discussion to follow. But the first part is called a living ice and some social implications. The story begins at the end of the last ice age some 12,000 years ago in the general region that was later to become known as the Bering Strait. At the time, the ice had bound up water f- and, and allowing for a bridge between the two continents, enabling people to walk over and begin colonizing the Americas from, the, from Asia, of course. With the gradual retraction of the ice covering North America, people moved began to move east and further into greenland crossing the narrow strait between northeast canada ellesmere island and northwest greenland the last immigration uh, into greenland took place around 1200 maybe 1250 uh, after uh, yeah, this era <laughs> making the inuit gradually populating all of greenland in short the Geological fact of the ice age and its retraction became a vehicle for, f- for human movement, and we have the first example of the social implications of the living ice and of its vibrant materiality, to use a term from Jane Bennett. The last immigration into Greenland, the one that I mentioned before in the 1200s, took place during the tail end of what has become known as the warm medieval period, allowing people to move along the Arctic coast of Canada and into Greenland and further south along the western coast of Greenland, and eventually meeting the Norsemen further south. They were still there. This line of communication was broken when the Little Ice Age blocked the passage and left the Inuit, that is the current name for the Tule people in the north, to their own devices for three centuries until they were rediscovered. And you can see the temperature... uh, uh, Differences between these two periods, and they may not seem seem vast in terms of actual degrees, but in terms of practical implications, they made a lot to the whole shape up of, well, of the world actually, also Pacific islands and all of Europe, etc. But we don't really know much about it. But in Greenland and in Iceland, we know a lot more than in many other places. This was all, uh, and and these people, they were discovered in in 1818 or rediscovered after having been invisible for about three centuries. And they were discovered by one of the explorers that went up through the Baffin Bay in order to find a northwest passage. But anyway, this was also the time when European scientists began understanding or studying the ice to understand the ice age through studies mainly of glaciers, leftovers, from then in the Alps and in Greenland. This was the first snapshot, this long-term living ice that make or unmake uh, communities. For the next snapshot of the living ice, I shall fast forward to mid-20th century, when the ice cap was to become an object of experiments in the Tulu region, where the Americans not only appropriated a vital part of the Nukhuit landscape, but also stole the name truly for their airbase, a grim token of the Cold War. The airbase was designed both to defend the free world against possible Russian missiles and to cater for scientific experiments, geophysical and meteorological. Meanwhile, the settlement uh, on the, um, that had been the regional center of the entire district, which you saw the cultures <coughs> before, was destroyed and people forcefully relocated in 1953. And they only counted about 80 people. So I mean, this massive influx of thousands and thousands of American soldiers dramatically altered the entire landscape. <coughs> anyway, the major American experiment was with, with the ice cap, of whose depth and plasticity one knew next to nothing. Despite the lack of knowledge, a construction of an under-ice city that would strengthen the bulwark against Soviet interests in the region began. It was argued that the observed retreat of glaciers and the polar warming more generally that had been predicted by scientists already since the 1930s were a threat to the US national security. It was therefore adamant to build up a solid long-range defense line to protect the free world and to build a secret base as a bulwark, a hidden bulwark against enemy onslaught. Camp Century was the result. Camp Century was dug into the ice cap some hundred kilometers from Thule Air Base on the plane and was a fantasy engineering project, except that it was also real. Widely seen as proof of the American power at conquering the Arctic environment. It was to be powered by a nuclear reactor and designed to withstand nuclear war. Construction began in 1959. Tunnels were made, and you can see them here. This is its not a photograph, but it is sort of a true account of what had happened, what was made there. Um, And, yeah, construction began in 1959, and tunnels were made, and the under-ice village, complete with living quarters, church, library, etc., was praised as a major feat of American technology. The reactor came last in 1960, but it was deactivated already in 1963 and removed the following year. The problem that the engineers uh, had not foreseen was that the apparent stability of the ice cap into which this fantasy was realized um, masked a constant movement caused by gravity from the center of the ice cap towards the rims, where it eventually breaks off as glaciers. The living ice is common knowledge today, but then it was not. So what happened was that the tunnels and trenches would gradually deform and bulge, and tunnel ceilings would give in. You can see a case here. And here I quote an author who studied this. Thus, in the summer of 1962, the ceiling of the reactor room had drooped so low that it had to be lifted five feet uh, to avoid fatal contact with the reactor and we're talking about a nuclear reactor. Subsequently, Camp Century was reduced to a summit in 1964, when the reactor was finally removed and abandoned altogether in 1969. So it was a relatively short ad- adventure. But the problem is that, of course, the stories multiply from there and remind us how deeply the heated geopolitical situation during the Cold War impinged on the global mind, barely noticing what went on because it was so far away, it was outside of people's general interest. Locally, it was certainly no secret, of course. Some years back, I had an extensive conversation with a seasoned hunter, and you can see us there actually at the very occasion, who had passed as a local political representative in the national government. While out camping by the ice edge for hunting, quite naturally, we talked about the changing ice conditions. He said, and he was very sort of adamant and, 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 and hard-spoken about it, that it was all down to the Americans. I mean, all the changes in the ice were down to the Americans who had tampered with the ice cap, making tunnels in it, believing, as he said, that they could make an under-ice road all the way down to the south. That was not really what they wanted. But still, he had a point, and then he complete he concluded saying they were mad and they destroyed the natural ways of the ice. In other words, one shouldn't tamper with the living ice. These years, the inhabitants voice a fear of there being nuclear waste still around in the ruined camp century corridors that may actually soon break off from the glacier nearing the sea. So a new social crisis possibly lingers in the living ice. And now the second part, living with ice and the meltdown of community life. Today, the global warming accelerates accelerates exponentially in the Arctic, and over the past 10 years, the changes have been rather dramatic. I mean, it began a little before, but I've followed the development over the past 10 years. In a community that has lived with the ice since prehistoric times, the current changes are unsettling in a very direct sense. As the sea ice dwindles and the glaciers retreat, the ramifications of Inuit social life changes conspicuously. Now here came the map of the Tula region. They have lived and hunted all along the rugged coastline from Inglefield land to Cape Melville, spanning some thousand kilometers of hunting ground. The sea ice has connected the more or less temporary settlements by forming a kind of highway between them for some eight to nine months of the year, where the dog sledges could go all over the place for hunting and visiting. As the all-important infrastructure, the sea ice also allowed hunters to go to the ed- ice age edge, edge by the opening north water in spring. Here they could uh, hunt m- the big marine mammals that were all-important for their survival. They still go there, but as the ice retreats earlier or- and becomes more slushy, as is generally, and in, is generally increasingly unnegotiable during most of the traditional season, season of ice age hunting, the hunt is dramatically diminished. This evidently uh, greatly affects life in the region. So again we can see how the ge- geological development undermines social relations, so far sustained through a roaming about and a sharing of meat, uh, which there is far less now to share. As ice-faring has become more circumscribed, the movement between the settlements has also diminished dramatically. This, again, has made people leave the smaller settlements, of which there are only three, at once left, and dwindling. People either move to the main town of Grana at least temporarily, and then possibly out of the region altogether. That is, as they say generally, they move south. Everything is south when seen from there. People are also hit by the rapidity by which the glaciers disappear. The glaciers in the region are covered in a layer of ever more conspicuous soot and algae owing to global pollution. You're all, you're all familiar with that also from other regions. This draws in heat from the sun and melting accelerates further. And this affects social life in more directly than one would have thought. <coughs> First, it undermines some of the few passages, the so-called sledge roads across the headlands that would have relieved some of the problems of connection by way of the sea ice. Second, and somewhat counterintuitively, it affects us access to drinking water. This surprised me somewhat when I first heard about it. I mean, after all, melting glaciers, shouldn't it produce water? <laughs> Yet it makes perfect sense when you look at it more closely and within particular uh, region here. If we look at Karnak, sort of was replacing Old Tule in 1953 as the central place of the district. It was built on a moraine plain close to a stream of water from the glacier above. And you can see this stream, or at least the, the bed of the stream that is no longer there, down in the middle of this, the village here. <coughs> so, And this glacier has now shrunk to a point where it no longer automatically delivers delivers water in the summer months, and new measures must be taken and the pipelines, etc only take it so far it 's very very complicated to to have these uh, pipelines because sometimes there will always also be glacier bursts and then pipelines everything will be swamped and gone again within a minute anyway, meanwhile, the icebergs that are captured in the ice and from where one always took fresh If deep frozen water during winter, also during travel from place to place, and we still survive on on this sort of iceberg water when we are in hunting camps, um, are increasingly inaccessible. Strange as it may seem, fresh water supply has become a challenge. You can see here, this, this is just a repository of water outside a private house. There are many other examples of exa- accelerating changes, but your general point is that social practices and community life uh, generally are deeply affected by global pre- processes on a macro geological scale. And people are, by force, increasingly disoriented as they try to stick it out in the region where they have so far lived with the ice. They are, they are perfectly aware of what's going on with the question of orientation, It's not a simple matter of making choices about remaining or moving away from the region. It is a constant and pressing need to collectively assess the opportunities (coughs) of the present and to reason consistently about them on the basis of all kinds of available knowledge, including scientific knowledge, of course, because it is now that the future is shaped. The intensifying elusiveness of this place hits the Inuit heart. I want to stress that I am not falling back here on an, an ancient dichotomy between, between local, local knowledge opposed to scientific knowledge. These, knowledges, these knowledge forms are equally located if dressed, dressed in different <coughs> spatial vernaculars, always being fluid, not flat, unsettling coordinates of distance and proximity, local and global, inside and outside, as Sarah Watmore suggests. The spatial vernacular in Havanoswak region is based upon an age-old engagement with non-human agents, not least the ice, a memento from the last glacier period, with which they have always lived, and which has formatted their sense of sociality to the core, including, of course, their relationship to the animals that are as dependent on the ice and the icy waters as our people. And now my final short paragraph here, which is a kind of conclusion. Um, and and the the general challenge of geosociality. The notion of geosociality serves as an important reminder about our being grounded in the physical world and about our contribution to its gradual reshaping. This reshaping did not simply come with the Anthropocene, it also brought us there. As Gisli and Heather argue in their seminal paper on geosociality, the concept opens up for analysis of multiple scales. Ethnographies of geosociality always unfold locally, but bear all the marks of the global, and show how temporalities are entwined. In the case presented here, we can see how the times of ice and the times of life are totally intertwined, confirming the analytical value of the plastic term of geosociality. If the ice in the high arctic in many ways stand out, stands out as its own argument, shaping and reshaping socialities <coughs> the relation has become increasingly reciprocal to close my argument i want to return to this notion of the anthropocene and refer to donna Haraway, suggesting that if the holocene can be seen as a period when places of refuge for cultural and biological development were still abundant what we are now faced with is the shrinking territory and the destruction of places and times of refuge the people, and other living species. Haraway goes on to suggest that if we think of the Anthropocene more like a boundary event than an epoch, marking dramatic discontinuities, we stand a chance to think afresh. She continues, I think our job is to make the Anthropocene as short or thin as possible and to cultivate with each other uh, in every way imaginable epochs that can replenish refuge. With this, I want to express my own belief that we may still return, if not to old ice covers, then at least to renewed sets of viability in the Arctic and elsewhere in the world, remembering that while humans are part of the problem with climate change, they are certainly also part of the possible solution. This is another significant promise, I believe, embedded in the notion of geosociality, for which I would once again want to thank Kirsty and Heather. So thank you all of you. Hello,
3: everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to see all of you. I'm honoured to be invited to this uh, forum.
2: Could and Could you speak up a bit? I think it may be difficult down there see, here.
3: It's a good idea. My yeah. voice is normally low, so it's great to see you all, and uh, I'm honored to be invited for this forum and to have a dialogue with Kirsten about important issues. She's such an impressive thinker and her current work on what she's presented is, is really dynamic and, and uh, overlaps with uh, some of my, my geosocial stuff. So I look forward to <coughs> having a dialogue with uh, Kirsten and all of you afterwards. Uh, so the key question to me is, do we need the uh, geosocial turn? There are endless turns if you look at the literature, I mean, uh, uh, material turn, uh, semiotic, uh, structuralist, uh, Marxist, whatever, <coughs> why bother with that geosocial turn? That's kind of my take. And and I'm drawing upon uh, a paper which uh, has already been mentioned with Heather Swanson, who's in Aarhus, and uh, it was part of uh, um, a Norwegian project organized by uh, Marianne Lien in Oslo, and and I was happy to take part in that. Uh, Along with several other <coughs> scholars, uh, here's uh, uh, an example of geosociality, if, if you like, it's a uh, well-known uh, art installation by a French woman, Nelly Van Huylen, and uh, it's sometimes called "Volcano in the Living Room." And see, and and we mentioned this in our. Article, Heather and I, Ben Hayon uh, designed these uh, mini volcanoes with uh, ignition stuff and, and uh, uh, materials <coughs> which is used in fireworks and, and had them explode randomly in the living room of London, Londoners uh, who had volunteered to, I don't know how many volcanoes she made but quite a few people in london had uh, a volcano erupting in in the living room so it's a kind of reminder of geosociality a particular form which uh, appeals uh, particularly to me i happen to be born and raised on a volcanic island and and there's always some uh, some earthquakes and and eruptions and my ties to eruptions and and uh, and Quayt is in fact uh, are in fact quite close. And I was born and raised on on the south of of the Icelandic mainland. <coughs> you may see some of the mainland at the top. In fact, if the view was clear, you would see the famous Eyjafjallajökull, which uh, Uh, erupted in 2010, with uh, spectacular implications for travel worldwide, (coughs) raising interesting questions about geosociality, by the way. So on the left side you see uh, uh, an old volcano, which hasn't uh, erupted for thousands of years, and um, I played on it when I was a kid, even went into the crater, and, and and it was a regular sort of uh, uh, trip for for kids and grown-ups and and we never imagined it would erupt again. And then, without any warming, so to speak, in December 1973, there was an eruption which became the volcano Heldfeld, and you see the rift, the ground would simply open and split up. You see the fishing town uh, in the middle of the island and, and this was one of the most important fishing towns in the country, mm-hmm. uh, 5,000 uh, inhabitants and, and a large fleet. Much of the uh, fishing export, which was the thing at the time, uh, came from this, from this harbor. Uh, and, and the inhabitants, uh, as I said, they had no warning. Uh, they woke up at 30, 2 o'clock in the morning, And fortunately, the fleet was in town and uh, they were taken to the mainland, which uh, there was a rough sea and it took three or four or five hours, depending on the boat. Um, And uh, I discuss uh, this eruption in in detail in in a new book, Down to Earth, a memoir. I hijacked the same title as from Heather's paper, so it's uh, heavily drawing upon the theory of, if you like, of geosociality, of the framework, and um, uh, but uh, this book is uh, is uh, a personal thing, and, and, and along the lines I've I've never written before, so it's been great fun, and it's about my own life as as a child and a teenager under volcanoes, and and my reflections on uh, on the closeness of of. Uh, mountains, rocks, volcanoes, and, and what they mean for us and, and, and how all of this hangs together with uh, social life, which is uh, geosociality, of course, and the book has been published last year in, in Icelandic and, and uh, uh, it's coming out in France next year and I'm still waiting to hear from an English publisher. This is the, probably the first image that was taken uh, in the morning of 23rd January 1973. Uh, a boy who became uh, my, one of my students in Reykjavik years later, and he showed me the image, and he took it himself. I think he was uh, age 12 and had a fancy camera, but he was shaking a bit, as you can imagine. <laughs> at uh, two in the morning, and having been woken up. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful image. You see the rift opening through the island. Fortunately, it wasn't through the town or the village. And the fleet is still there, so it's before people leave. And here is an image of the first uh, uh, load of people coming to the mainland, Thorlovsk. And you sense the anger, the tension, the anxiety, and um, uh, the boy on the left, he's trying to be cool. (laughs) His sister is uh, without shoes, so people grabbed in panic, whatever they imagine would be relevant, often completely miscalculating what they would need, (laughs) going away, and they had no idea whether they would be going for one night or for years. No one knew. So at, at this time, I was an M.A. student in anthropology in, in Manchester, and um, I was told by, by lunchtime that I'd been an eruption in the Westman Isles, and I said, come on, there's no active volcano there, relax, if a understanding. There was an eruption in Surtsey, nearby, ten years earlier. There must be a confusion. <laughs> uh, but uh, it proved to be true, and, and the papers had, had this uh, on But what really got me into thinking about this, I mean, I took my geology course in gymnasium, probably like most of you, and and I thought geology was boring. I mean, why bother? (laughs) Let's others think of geologic time and and, uh, mountains and eruptions and stuff. And and as I entered university, uh, social theory told me that uh, it's Durkheim and the rest that Social life was completely independent uh, of biology plus the geos, the crust of the planet itself. So I haven't really touched issues of this sort until uh, the uh, dynamic project at CAS in in Oslo, which Mariana Lee and organized as I mentioned. What really got me into this was. uh, I think my ideas were brewing when I was uh, writing with Heather, and I discussed the case of the Heimei eruption in the article with Heather. But uh, it only later occurred to me that I needed to write a memoir and and really get into the details of the eruption and how it affected people's lives. And and this image, uh, which I saw on Facebook just by pure chance, uh, some uh, three years ago really blew my mind because this is the house where I was born and conceived, presumably, <laughs> and raised. And, uh, and, um, and it's uh, the, the eruption started in 23rd January, and, and this I learned later. I didn't know the time of death of the house as the was my land, to speak. But I learned later that this was 2nd April, I could see it in the newspapers. So uh, after several weeks of eruption, uh, people imagine this house and many others in the eastern part of town would be safe, but uh, but there you go. And uh, I I tracked down the photographer. Uh, he happened to be a childhood friend of mine and he had several other images and he happened to be on this spot, which is rare. Ironically, although I was away in Manchester, the, the best documentation of the death of a house in this manner happens is, is to my house. Uh, and the name of the house is Bolstad, Bolstadur in Icelandic, which really means habitat or, or dwelling. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was placed at the street, which is Heimagata, which means home, street, habitat again. And there is Heimae, which again is kind of habitat island, the island where you belong. So uh, crazy coincidences like that, which got me to uh, to uh, dive into the history of the eruption with uh, the archives and the people who who uh, remembered this, etc. And I showed the image to my mother, who was alive at the time, and, and my siblings. They were all, and we were all stunned. I mean, it was a shocking. I was watching the the television or the computer screen with tears in my eyes, and all of them. What is uh, very interesting w- with this uh, eruption is the fact that it's the first time uh, humans attempt to to uh, seriously to halt or to direct the lava flow. Of course, throughout throughout history, in in uh, in Naples, for instance, and many other places. And Hawaii, people have tried with shovels or whatever they had to, to uh, avoid uh, more destruction than necessary because of lava flows. And it's usually been all in vain. In this case, uh, tried uh, decided to try a, a system of pumping, and uh, it was a genuine uh, uh, ingenious idea uh, invented by Fortje uh, Silverson, uh, a geophysicist who was trained with Niels Bohr here in nearby in physics, and a very sharp and, and original guy who who said, Let's try to cool the lava. Let's. <laughs> and, and most people said, This is crazy. It, it will not work. It's, it's a waste of time. Try to save something, something else. But uh, uh, the Westman Islanders ag- agreed to give it a try, and, and uh, with the uh, fire people, and, 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 and you see the western up there pumping towards the lava, they, they tried to really cool that sy- systematically, and uh, Sigurd the student of, ex-student of Bohr, he had calculated the sort of uh, the heat theory, what's, it, what's its heat theory in physics? The noise. Thermodynamics, of course. <laughs> he, has calcula- he had calculated sort of how much of sea on the harbor would be needed to cool down uh, uh, a square meter of, of, uh, of lava uh, given the temperature coming from the, the volcano. And so it was a good theory behind it. Uh, but uh, the practicalities and uh, crazy. And uh, uh, a few weeks after the, a month after the, five weeks after the eruption began, uh, uh, 40 pumps from the U.S. uh, Navy were imported to Iceland by by air, and uh, you see them to the right. Of them, massive diesel and, and petrol engines pumping uh, seawater from the harbor and then onwards to the lava systematically, where cooling really might matter. And you see the pipes, the engineering, so this is really uh, sort of uh, an engineering project on, on flowing lava. And in the long run, it worked. Uh, it did. Visibly freeze the lava flow um, and the front, and prevent uh, or and protect part of the, uh, part of the houses of the community, and save the harbor, which was the main thing. Without the harbor, uh, without the cooling, possibly the harbor would have closed, and without an harbor, this community would be dead, and uh, a huge fragment of the, the economy and fishing industry. Would be gone. So you see the, the scale of pumping. And uh, um, I said that uh, the eruption had happened uh, overnight without any warning, and it's practically true. Westman Islanders had no clue. But there were two uh, seismograms of this kind, more or less, not quite. This is a more later version, and this is now stored in, in the natural science uh, the, on campus. And this is Pat Lainason, a well-known geophysicist who partly designed this machine as a PhD student at Columbia University. And, and there were two meters like this, or machines, on the mainland. And uh, there were two people uh, uh, hundreds of miles between the machines. But the people in charts, they observed the evening before that something was brewing, something really crazy. And the arrow was dancing around and, and they had never seen anything like it. So, so, they went up to the mountains in darkness and said, there must be an eruption either here or here. <laughs> but the third meter was missing. With, with three, meter, three machines, they would have used a, a kind of triangulation and say exactly something is brewing in the Westman Islands. At this time, however, Few people believed in, in predicting the eruptions. And even though they might have called to the Westman Isles at midnight and listened, there's something brewing, there might be an eruption, it would probably have been okay, call again. <laughs> and, uh, but it was uh, uh, now on hindsight, this, the, these uh, two persons in charge, they were convinced there would be an eruption. And on hindsight, this is the first time in Icelandic history where. An eruption has been predicted. So, to finalize uh, uh, the geosociality take, uh, there are lots of concepts around. There is geologic intimacy, which Halperin used, and um, so reasoning that sea is akin to uh, mountains and, and volcanoes, etc. Some people speak about the geologic turn, material term, neo materialism, etc. And uh, Heather and I use geosociality as a kind of umbrella. I mean, uh, it's not, not particularly uh, original. I mean, others have been doing this with all other concepts. But it's handy, and why not? And, uh, and uh, I think that geosociality is, is very important uh, in the current age of the, the Anthropocene, as Kirsten was arguing. The crazy times, uh, uh, characterized by growing human impact on the planet, demand that we we think our relationship to the planet in in new terms, somehow. And uh, One of the points to mention is that uh, we seem to be literally manufacturing eruptions. It's not a joke. Uh, The the glaciers are, are melting, that reduces the pressure on the crust It's opening up with quakes and and eruptions and geologists think they have already seen examples of of that manufacturing of eruptions and and, uh, it's part of global warming. So uh, my conclusion, yes, we need to reboot in in these crazy times, we need to uh, uh, rethink our social theory to to open up for for, uh, for chaos, and the question now is how do we realign this stuff? Thank you very much.
1: Do you want to come up here all, please? Do you have any questions for each other before we open up the discussion? Can I just make one point? Sure,
3: absolutely. The, your material is, is is very exciting in, in, sort of in terms of geosociality. It's uh, the uh, drilling into the glacier uh, in sort of, for Cold War purposes, is a spectacular example of geosociality, if you like, plus of course uh, the uh, melting of, of the uh, Ice, which is a long-term process of global warming last centuries, so mm-hmm. in two senses on on a, on a short term. Yeah. I mean, since the Second World War, <coughs> Cold War it, it's, uh, uh, the geosocial impact is there. But the long durée for the last couple of centuries, depending on how you define the anthropocene, you you also have geosocial, yeah. sort of spectacular human impact on the. The crust. Yes,
2: it is quite amazing actually and I would go on to say that what, um, what I would have liked to address more uh, deliberate or, or more, um, yeah, what I would like to have said is that, uh, that uh, perhaps the Anthropocene is not such a good term anyway because, I mean, when did it truly begin? Yeah. Because in a sense it began centuries ago because we've been going in that direction ages and ages, tampering with nature and moving along, etc. So so there is a sense in which I think it's a difficult concept to... I use it a lot, a lot more, but I use it just to indicate sort of the current rights of the globe, but I think Donna Haraway has a very good point in saying, and maybe we should try and sort of rewind our <laughs> our conceptions a bit and say, well, can we get past it in some way, and what does it take? We cannot... We, we can never, I think delete the prints, the footprints we have on the globe, but can we perhaps diminish their impact? So in a sense, so I think there's some hope in in that particular piece of writing of ours. Just like I think there is hope in in sort of bringing the natural and the social sciences in closer contact. I think that is very important these years. I mean, just social and natural sciences, I mean, they do overlap in many ways, but I think it is very important but, uh, you know, I, uh, well, I, I really like your Heimei stuff as, as what you've done else. But I have a question to your presentation here, and that is the, the role of art. I can see the pictures are very nice, and uh, I like the idea that, that people sort of made pictures just ahead of the catastrophe, and thus already, in a sense... Predicting them—that's I mean, at least what you suggested. But but does art? What does art add to the anthropological understanding? In a sense, I mean, I may be art blind, but I mean, it is a serious question because it comes art comes up all over the place mm-hmm. in these years, and and I would like perhaps to discuss that a bit further. I mean, we don't have we we don't have any art in in the high Arctic except for the small figures that people okay. cut out, and then of course a beautiful sealskin clothing and, and and cushions. But but it's not this. And so it's part of who they are. It's part of their biology. It's part of of the sort of intimacy with non-humans. But 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 art mm-hmm. as such. I mean, I I need to be enlightened.
3: Me too. <laughs> um, I came to Copenhagen from. Uh, Big conference sure, in, yeah. in Naples on, on the theme Cities on Volcanoes. And it was mostly geophysicists yeah. and volcanologists and reflecting on Vesuvius and Pompeii and Hercule and the rest of it. But there was a session on, on arts and science where I gave practically the same talk. And there were a few artists mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. humanities scholars who were uh, playing with. Uh, Art somehow. Um, I think uh, uh, artists can can open windows. I think uh, Ilana's concept of I don't know when she made the pictures and and went to the Westmore Islands. She went again ten years later. So (laughs) every end of a decade she visits. So uh, twenty years ago, maybe. Uh, um, she's been reflecting on, on, on this through her artwork. It, it, it appeals to people, and, and, uh, and somehow it brings the, the earth closer. There's an Icelandic artist, uh, fairly well-known, Christian, I think is the first name, and he travels around the globe and, uh, and uh, uh, assembles uh, material from the earth, different kinds of uh, uh, dust or stones, and, and he brings this back to Iceland and literally uses this stuff for his paintings, so, so he brings chaos with him into the frame of a painting. I think uh, conceptual work like this uh, mm. can inspire some uh, geosocial thinking, it's, it's yeah. not... Uh, yeah not uh, heavily theoretical, although in Ilana Halperin's case it it is. I mean, she is fleshing out the concept of geologic intimacy.
4: And
3: and this artwork has kind of inspired me. Uh, I I began thinking, after reading and and looking at Halperin's words, I began thinking, what would be my volcano? (laughs) So I looked for my closest kin in terms of age class. And I found there was a lava flow from Mount Hecla, which erupted in 1947, two years before I was born. So, probably at the time my, my parents were getting engaged and falling <laughs> in love, et cetera. And, um, and, I, and I found the <laughs> lava of 1947, and Hecla happens to kind of spread different layers of mm-hmm. lava over the hundreds of years. And, I don't know how many layers, 50 or something, mm-hmm. eruptions, fairly well documented, and sometimes they overlap, etc. But I found my lava, and, <laughs> and I drove to the lo- le- next farm and, and told the, uh, the local farmer, can you show me my lava from 1947, and he smiled and said, yes, go there. And I walked on the lava with my siblings and friends, and, and it was uh, I, um, nice day tour, and again I'm reminded of our closeness to, to the planet. Yeah. It's a, a fishy answer to your question. but uh, No, no,
2: my question was probably very fishy too, but uh, it still is just once you take art out, out of this particular context, where you see it out, where you connect it directly to what has happened, then it becomes something different, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's a depiction of geosociality at the best case, but, but not really part of it. I don't know, but I mean, that's just a feeling.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but it, it's interesting that it has come to play such a significant role, especially in, in around notions of the Anthropocene and, yeah. and in, in the oral Project in Aarhus, etc. They have this yeah. art. I think artists, mentioning the, the yeah. Anthropocene, mm-hmm.
3: it's, it's uh, terribly important now. I mean, you have art installations all over the place. Mm-hmm on the Anthropocene and humans and the Earth, etc. So it's a so it must mediating
2: be. knowledge. Yeah. yeah.
3: But I think it's also somehow... Uh, art is often uh, sort of uh, ahead of the times, in my view. And, and uh, my English version of my book opens with a quote from uh, Max Frisch. It's a famous book, The Holocene. Mm-hmm. And it's written in the 70s. And uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but he said, literature up to now is focused on social life, human life, how we l- relate to each other and fight and, and love, et cetera. This is passé. This is out of date. What we need now is an engagement with the times. I don't remember the fr- wording, but he's literally saying and uh, that uh, art, uh, there's a need for a different form of art. And, uh, and it's written ahead of the time, before anyone thought of the Anthropocene. But he seemed to have his fingers on, on the problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: But I think what anthropology does best is to, is to analyze, I mean, and, and to make concepts that may show us new sides to the world we are studying. And the concepts we use that generally. Sort of lifting us out yeah. of the actual space we are studying so that we may talk across fields and mm-hmm. times, etc. And between us we know what we're talking about when we talk about geosociality for instance, and we know the general shape, but then, but it also allows us to see the multiplicity of what's going on within such frameworks. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it is a very strong term, of geosociality, I think. Mm-hmm. At least to, to at this time we needed, I think, a new concept mm-hmm. to take us a bit further yeah. into the studies of the sort of the deeper layers of, of, um, of influence upon human life. It's not simply the, the carbon emission and the whatever, there are all sorts of things going on mm-hmm. beneath our feet. And,
1: um, yeah, I think it's very important, actually. Uh, thank you for your presentations and for your conversation here afterwards. That opened up for some new discussions in relation to art in, in the Anthropocene antrop- and in mm-hmm. geosociality as well. So, do we have any questions from the audience? Heiko? Yeah.
5: yeah. <coughs> you have, you have two, oh sorry, I have two um, short <laughs> questions. Um, the one is that the terminology, and I read this great interest recently the Silver Stenger said you know this to me this all this slightly odd terms sort of uh Gaia as this kind sort of responding being um, very much against my own inclinations so are stuck with me. And I think it's it's incredibly powerful so this this, this being that responds but has no morality, it has doesn't care but it responds, right? So to whatever we do to it. So one question can one <coughs> open up the geo to Gaia and whatever that mean. And that links to the second question. <coughs> now anthropology has historically been more linked to the romantic project. But now I've been um, director of studies here for three years and it impresses on me that at least recently uh, anthropology, certainly when it's not practicing university, but what our students do. Sort of decidedly moved into the modernist camp in the sense that what our students do is kind of producing or being sort of instrumental part in, in sort of tinkering with society, making, you know, um, making sort of the wheels of industry go smoother, mm-hmm. um, making sort of finding new forms of administration, doing you know how does the noble notice apply its drugs more you know, better and so on. So th- that is the domain of anthropology today, right? So it's very much a modernist project of improving society. Now, and I think if you put these two things together, then I think that anthropology has, as it expands, right, it, and as it becomes more practical, is at the forefront of how we live in this world and, and trying to kind of um, manipulate, improve, uh, how we live mm-hmm. in, the, in this mm-hmm. world. And so the question then becomes, right, can we take your discussions that I think are so evocative in Iceland and Greenland with the volcanoes with the iceberg, does, can they reach all the way to Denmark, which also has remade itself in the last hundred years in very close interaction mm-hmm. with nature, um, although it's not so spectacular. So, so these two questions. You know, <laughs> Does this thing of the, the, this strange term of the Gaia work for you guys? And then, does, does this reach all the way to Denmark? A- and what happens if you sort of scale it up like that? You start? You use this notion in your article. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: connected very much to that two of Let's hear what Piszczi says. Uh, the
3: Gaia thing. Uh, I used to think uh, when some some of my colleagues were speaking about Gaia some 10, 15 years ago. This is too romantic for me, (laughs) forget it, it's uh, like um, the passion for indigenous knowledge Mm -hmm. sometimes, Um, but uh, um, my my ideas have changed on, on, on that score any other things and I think uh, there's a growing uh, <coughs> uh, consensus that Gaia may may be useful, like the Anthropocene mm-hmm. Gaia the, the notion of the mother Earth where everything hangs together, and with geosociality you, you simply add human life which has been seen to be on the top of the crust, mm-hmm. you, you add it to the mm-hmm the real thing mm-hmm. and uh, see it as a whole and and, <coughs> and uh, I think it actually makes good sense mm-hmm. and it, it invites uh, lots of questions like the notion of the Anthropocene about mm-hmm. the agency and mm-hmm. as you say and who's in charge and what can we do but uh, and interestingly <coughs> hardcore geophysicists are now speaking about Gaia seriously and, and they would, I mean, decades ago, they would abandon this romanticism and mm-hmm. stick to the minerals, the, the crust, etc., mm-hmm. The hard, really hard stuff. But uh, some of them, I, I've forgotten the names uh, at the moment, but uh, I have some of this stuff in my, mm-hmm. my book. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the arguments is that, you know, the theory of tectonic plates and uh, we tend to think about the crust of the planet as a as a dead thing or maybe it moves i mean the tectonic plates move we now know but one of the geophysicists has been arguing that uh, <coughs> it's not as simple as that it's not uh, that the crust is there with its plates dancing and then you have life bios uh, etc in fact uh, fragments of early life, microbes and stuff yeah. like, like that, act as lubricants for the tectonic plates mm. way down into the crust. So this notion of, the old fashioned notion of Gaia, <laughs> or the material world, um, as we think, although it may be dancing, then with the bios on top, microbes, mm. humans and the rest of it, and social life, it's, it's all being re- rethought. So I think uh, Gaia may, may, uh, may be useful. <coughs> yeah, I would like to, to add to
2: this uh, that uh, Latour has suggested the notion of Gaia for, for the Anthropocene Earth. Now, because now we know that the Earth is a living thing. It's not a simple, sort of objective bundle of stones and magma and, and what have you. And then, as Gisli said, with humans and other life forms on top of it, it's all connected. And I think in that sense, it makes it makes uh, perhaps some sense. But I don't know what it adds to speaking simply of the earth as a living thing. And to me, it has sort of a slightly artificial, Mm -hmm. sort of romantic, powdery flavor, which I really reset (laughs) normally. I may be (laughs) prejudiced, but, but, uh, and I also, I mean, I saw Latour made a sort of a road show with a performance called Gaia, that I saw in London some years ago. It was awful. (laughs) <laughs> because it didn't, it didn't succeed in conveying sort of the, the actual, the, the strength of this concept. It became very superficial, again, art, but, uh, but not, I mean, it could have been better, but I mean, it, it sort of fizzled out, and, and then he was called in to sit and explain everything on stage afterwards, <laughs> so I thought, well, yes. So it's not exactly my cup of tea. I mean, maybe Anders may have a different <laughs> analysis. No, no, the show of is awesome. have
1: a different
2: uh, idea about the Natura's concept. But that's where I first met it in recent time and then sort of slightly discarded it because I think the earth is good enough for me to speak about. It's big enough, living enough, full of enough people and, and animals. But I think the other part the other part of your question we can return to that in a general discussion. The other part of your question about us educating students students to go out and affect life mm-hmm. and and sort of make differences and tell people what to do it is indeed a very intriguing thing to ponder because I think being sort of an old timer mm-hmm. as an anthropological teacher i mean people f- should first have basic concepts that have a sense of the theory and method and what have you and then of course afterwards they can do whatever they, they want but anthropology in the scientific sense I think is very much about theories and uh, field work so sort of close ethnographic attention to details it need not be ages and years and years but, but this paying close attention to details before suggesting theories or practical solutions. So I think many of these <coughs> young anthropologists or older ones that should sort of go out and affect the world, they do it on basis of, of solid anthropological analysis, and then, of course, it's, it's perfect. I think anthropologists, I mean, I love anthropologists, I mean, it's a sort of uh, occupational hazard, but, but I think really they, we, might potentially make a difference, which is needed on many schools. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I <laughs> agree
3: no, but, uh, it's it's vital to to get one's theory and and, uh, and our sort of ethnographic grounding uh, mm-hmm. before making uh, huge statements about yeah. the real and, and uh, how to affect the world. On the other hand, uh, <coughs> life out there impacts on us on all sure. levels as mm-hmm. as children, grown up, students, professionals and uh, activism, environmental activism, mm. for instance. Mm. It's, uh, we're not unaffected by it. Yeah. We can resist it. And, and, uh, and, uh, but I, I think we sort of join it uh, mm. at different points points yeah. in time. Yeah. I mean, uh, OK, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing my PhD, I'm, I'm doing my ethnography, I, I need to get my tools in order. But then, before you know it, be you become Active and you, mm. you take part in protests and and environmental and movements, and politics or whatever, yeah. And, yeah. and then you can sort of shift back into a different gear. I need to get my 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 tools in order. Like me, I mean, <laughs> I need to get a sense of geosociality, if you like, and mm. and, and then perhaps yeah. return to um, the real world. Uh, one point, perhaps uh, many of our discipline—I mean, philosophy, anthropology, etc.—endlessly debate uh, the as to whether rocks are dead or alive. <laughs> uh, and la- late, late sugaya, I mean, yeah. is it just dead and ticking, or is it all thoroughly alive from minerals upwards? And. Mm-hmm. and uh, the jury is still out, but uh, the, the, uh, there's a growing uh, uh, support for living. Mm-hmm. People like Hugh uh, Raffles mm-hmm. uh, write about stones as, as living in some sense. But others, uh, sociologist um, Nigel Clark, I think I remember correctly, mm-hmm. says that it's a mistake to think of everything as living. We need to take minerals on their own. But for what they are rather than forcing our living mm. notions onto mm. them just to throw one of the big pusses on the table yeah.
2: I think that is a good point and, and I think what we should we should be open to many things and I think it's not always an either or but perhaps a both and and do different things at different points in, in time and whether you consider the earth as living or dead it's there and uh, you have to deal with whatever you Erupts from it, mm-hmm. uh, and and that also goes for the political systems that we have today. That I mean, they're also in some sense eruptions from long-term mm-hmm. processes going back to the Enlightenment and and further and uh, and to the birth of humanity, etc., and the early migrations around the globe, etc. So both there are um, so many scales at play in whatever we are doing and whatever we are. Con- whatever we are writing or analysing at at a particular moment in time, but we have to bracket something, Mm -hmm. otherwise we can't get anywhere. If we have to keep it all within the same picture, then we're not really (coughs) contributing much to to general debate. I think the thing is to think fast and contribute to as many discussions as you can. That's Mm -hmm. the memento to students here. (laughs) (laughs) Just work fast.
1: (laughs) So we move on to the next question from Annas.
6: Yeah. Um, thank you for the, for the presentations and the, and the opportunity um, to ask a question. Um, f- of course, uh, I would have asked about Gaia, but <laughs> then, then I won't know. I actually <laughs> want to ask a question, which is also a little bit of a statement maybe hmm. on the art Let's see. I, yeah, um, I, I know you have um, prejudices. there. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I was really struck by this first image that you showed, the, the volcano in the living room, and my 50 cents of art analysis here would say that, of course, what's going on here has to do with something we could call surprising or disjunctive or uh, unlikely scales. I mean, geology, after all, in the shape of the volcano, is not just brought inside sociality, right? It is brought inside a very specific Mm. form of sociality, the intimacy Mm. of domesticity, thereby also, of course, being put into play with the rhythms of everyday life. I think that's an extremely interesting conceptual statement and provocation for further thinking about what something like geosociality (coughs) might mean in the first place, given, as you have stressed many times, Kirsten, that there are indeed many scales at Mm. work, therefore also many forms of geologies, many forms of socialities, which rub off and with and within each other in various kinds of ways all the way from the bodily to the planetary mm. and of course the w- the work is not just saying that it's it's committed let's say to a particular mm. staging of that right so it's p- committed to staging theology inside sociality and a particular form of sociality perhaps in the vein of the geological intimacies that you were talking about so this is just a little bit of a statement and perhaps a that little bit fine. of a provocation yeah. for you to sort of. Think with that work and the but statement it's making does, yeah. and, 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 and try to play with where that might take the notion of geosociality. But
2: that's exactly what they do in these cities. Mm. I'm just at least reading that <laughs> <you>. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah. Anyway, I take your point. I'm not exactly convinced because then again, I mean, in contrast to written analysis that can circulate much wider, these little art pieces in, in confined spaces, they may make somebody think, but most people, I think, would, wouldn't know about it. I mean, the reason we know about it now is because it's been published within an article where it makes sense. But, but generally, I think that it's, it's more difficult to reach out to the general public with art than with the written word. And perhaps all sorts of of uh, performances, etc., that are live and, and, and kicking and sort of gather people around themselves. And while these sort of solitary artworks in people's private homes, they may be nice and they may be good to think with for the people affected by them. But most most aren't. It's I don't know. You may have a rejoinder to that. Mm.
3: I think the uh, it would be. Uh, Inefficient environmental politics to, to put these artificial volcanoes <laughs> in living rooms and in and millions of homes. And something else should work faster and more efficiently. Yeah. But it may nevertheless ignite. Yeah. Olavur Eliasson, whom many of you will know, yeah. uh, had uh, several cubic meters of ice uh, planted on, was it in Paris? Yes. As an installation, and had it melt in front of people's eyes, and and know that thousands, perhaps millions, knew of it, and and sort of brought in the Arctic, Mm. and the ethnography Mm. you describe in your works, and and, uh, (coughs) making it more real. Yeah. But but then again. we have all the evidence, and then we have the uh, heavy machinery of the Trumps in America and the Environmental Agency reversing everything. Now you you are free to uh, to set methane loose into the atmosphere and to extract oil and etc. I mean, these guys know all the evidence. Mm. To them, it's just mm. at least official mm. fake news. Mm. <laughs> so. <laughs> Environment yeah. environmental politics is yeah. amazingly tricky and complex at the time. Yeah.
2: I would like to add just an anecdote to this Paris um, uh, meeting there, because they also brought in three hunters from Ghana, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, all their gear, their so <laughs> skin clothes, and they, brought, they would have had the, them to take dogs and sledges, but they'd s- simply forgotten that there was no snow nor ice on which they could ride. So they were just left there in some street. Somebody took some pictures, and that was all that was heard of them. And they went round in their sort of bearskin trousers for days in Paris, just on eternal exhibit without no one noticing them. <laughs> really, except they were weird, possibly insane. So it, that was one installation that didn't work.
6: Everyone knew it was a big
2: deal.
0: This podcast is produced by the Anthropological Association of Denmark. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and also stay tuned for future events on the association's Facebook page. Og til de danske lyttere: Er du ikke allerede medlem af antropologforeningen, så kan du blive det i dag ved at tilmelde dig foreningen på vores hjemmeside. Den finder du på www.antropologforeningen.dk. Du kan også finde og like vores Facebook-side eller blive en del af foreningens netværk gennem LinkedIn. Tak fordi du lyttede med.